Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to look at the eight limbs of yoga. With me is Dr. Leanne Whitney, who is a teacher of yoga teachers. She teaches yoga philosophy, which is what we'll be talking about today. She is the author of Consciousness in Jung and Patanjali. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Jeff. Nice to be with you again. It is a pleasure to be with you once again. And I know you have a real passion for uh, classical yoga philosophy and uh, really the yoga classic is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is where the eight limbs are articulated. Yes, that's right. Uh, Patanjali basically, um, I want to say collated. He took the Upanishads. He took Buddhism. You can see the influence of um, a lot of other texts inside his, and he um, put a bunch of information together, authored 195 lines, and uh, it's definitely an enduring piece of scholarship. And at least in the United States, most yoga teacher trainers have uh, a yoga philosophy, yoga psychology module as part of their yoga teacher training. Mm -hmm. So why are they called limbs? To begin with. So, in Patanjali's vision, basically, it's a vision of wholeness. That reality is pure consciousness, and uh, that consciousness is the totality of being. So, there is nothing outside of it. It's singular, it's eternal, it's absolute. Uh, so, his idea of limbs is just like a baby grows in a womb, that all these limbs will grow together. So, uh, I'll go through the eight limbs, shall I? Yes. So he has uh, the yamas, the niyamas, asana, the physical practice, pranayama, the breathing exercises, pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal, and then he has dharana, dhyana, samadhi, which is concentration, meditation, and absorption. So a lot of times people think of these as steps. and mm-hmm. um, Like a sequence. Yeah, kind of like a sequence, absolutely. And if you want to uh, look at it as steps, I would s- encourage people to hold that very loosely because limbs is really the more accurate translation as uh, one works on the asana, as one works on the breath, as one um, sort of retrieves projection and pulls one's senses inside, sort of all of it is growing. The, the body of yoga is all growing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, eight limbs almost reminds me of a spider. Spider. <laughs> Not that that was intended, I uh, presume. I don't think so. I mm-hmm. don't think so. But I, I do think that metaphor would like just a body growing, mm-hmm. a body growing, and all the limbs when one is in the womb are growing mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. Now, yama and niyama are yes. the first two, and you defined the other six, but we never defined yama and niyama. Yes, and they de- they take a bit more definition. Uh, mm-hmm. We can unpack all of the mm-hmm. all of those limbs actually, but um, so yama. Mm-hmm is the god of death in the Katha Upanishad, well, in the mythology overall, but mm-hmm. in the Katha Upanishad, which is one of the most prominent texts. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that Patanjali actually starts at the end. If you think of death as the end, he that's how he opens his path. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my opinion, it's sort of similar to the way 
that he opens the whole text mm -hmm. with the word now, atta, now, present moment. And then now this eightfold path is going to, the end is going to be the beginning. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of, it's, again, it's circular because it's built upon a foundation of wholeness. Mm -hmm. So it's reaching out to people who are uh, suffering or, or separated out of that wholeness and sort of calling them back into the wholeness that they already are. Again, so it's not achieving something other. It's more of a uh, clearing away of, of blockages. So those yamas, I'll list them for you. It is um, nonviolence, truthfulness, uh, non-stealing, um, walking in the awareness of the highest reality, a term called brahmacharya, uh, and then non-greed. Um, and again, why it's profound in the same way as he starts the text with the word now, and as we know, right, Ram Das, be here now, our Eckhart Tolle, the power of now. There's so much potency in the present moment. And in this, uh, his description of these yamas, he is talking about the universality, the universal principles that, um, Brahman Actually, we should go back and define that term as well. <laughs> that's <laughs> uh, a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, that's so, yeah, let's do that, shall we? So, mm -hmm. so, um, yoga philosophy is a, one of the six orthodox Hindu philosophies that is rooted in the, um, the Upanishadic tradition where Brahman is the term for God. But as a Westerner, we have to hold that very loosely because mm -hmm. it's not a Judeo-Christian type of God. Uh, it really translates as the absolute or pure consciousness, consciousness, um, not like a, a patriarchal God in the sky sort of judging with fire and brimstone. Uh, you know, I suppose it may be hard for Westerners to even grasp a concept that comes from another culture. Yes, I, I would say that that's actually, it's so true because it's so different. Mm -hmm. And for actually yoga teachers who um, are born in India and that come to teach us in the West, I think it's also very important that they know how split our mind is because of the split between science and religion and because of our split between heaven and earth. We're, the Western mind is dealing with splits that the Eastern mind mm -hmm. isn't dealing with. And because we have splits upon splits upon splits, we're trying to grasp after this concept, looking through the filters of all those splits. So it's actually... Uh, Probably more challenging, well, definitely more challenging for us to get to than someone, let's just say, who's suffering, but born out of that culture, mm -hmm. right? Because Brahman would have been taught to them from a very early age. And, and also, I suppose it's fair to say that it's a very ancient culture. These terms, these deities evolved in their use o over millennia. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the Rig Veda, right? 1500 years old, 1500 uh, BCE, right? Mm -hmm. Before the current era. So it's, it's, it's very ancient. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, a lot of streams of thought, six orthodox philosophies, Patanjali being one. And, um, Again, he utilizes this term yama as the beginning of this eightfold path. And mm -hmm. it definitely dovetails for mm -hmm. sure into that Katha Upanishad. Well, I think of Brahman um, with my Western mind as as being the essence of the universe. Yes, 
Yes. And essence is great. I th actually, I think you and I talked about this for before. Mm -hmm. So that's a Latin term where uh, E-S-S-E, -S -S -E, the, the, the etymology of that term essence means to be or is or I am. So it does. And that's what Brahman is. It's, it's being, the reality of being, which also equates to consciousness in that system of thought. So in other words, consciousness is all there is. And again, that's really hard for Westerners to understand being brought up in a model where mm -hmm. consciousness is epiphenomenal. It's a product of the brain. Um, but, uh, in that system of thought, knowledge is structured in consciousness and consciousness is the reality mm -hmm. of our being. Now, you mentioned the term brahmacharya as being one of the yamas. I, I was originally led to believe that the yamas are all the things you don't do. You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't inflict violence on others. And brahmacharya, I thought, meant you, you don't engage in sexual activity. Right. It is often interpreted that way. Um, now, Obviously, Patanjali is going to be read at, the, I want to say, the level from the point of view of the person who's actually reading the text. Yeah. Um, yes, we don't want to steal, but what I'm trying to say here is that Brahman, because it is singular, yes. eternal, absolute, there is no other, mm -hmm. and it's self-illuminating, it's not stealing from itself. It's not possessing something other than what it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's the pure ground. It doesn't go outside of itself. So all that the idea of stealing can only be happening in potentially uses the term vrittis, the modifications of the mind and the habit patterns. The only thing that can steal it is something that would even conceptually believe it was other than it. Mm. Do, you, do you follow me there? Well, I, I do, but I, <laughs> we're getting into some dangerous territory here. It's reminding me of uh, the time I interviewed the Tibetan uh, Lama Chogyam Trumpa, who at the time was a chain smoker. And I, I called him on it. I said, look at you. You're supposedly an enlightened Buddhist monk and you're chain smoking. And he said, well, when you're enlightened, you can do anything. So, would it mean that if I'm an enlightened yogi, I, I can steal because I realize that there, I, there's nobody else but me anyway? Now we're, yeah, we're definitely pointing to the nuances because the only game we're ever going to play this against is ourself. Mm -hmm. So to the degree that we would ever lie or be, let's just say, out of balance and, uh, and acting some kind of theft or something. Again, uh, did I, I already listed the Yama's truthfulness. Yes. To that. Uh, it, it really is absolute in this tradition. It is consciousness, pure perception. And again, Patanjali uses other terms interchangeably with consciousness, one of mm -hmm. them being perception, yeah. seeing. So it's pure perception. You see what I mean? So if one is lying to oneself... Yeah. I think part of, of uh, the issue that we, we're struggling with here, uh, 
maybe I'm wrong, but I think it has to do with the fact that uh, Westerners largely encountered these philosophies in the Victorian era and tended to interpret many of these things through the lens of Victorian morality. So the do's and do nots began to seem like, you know, the Ten Commandments or something like, like that. And I gather what you're saying is there's a much deeper philosophical thinking behind it. It's not just about do this and don't do that. No, that's where, um, so if we go back to Brahman, that term allows for no metaphysical splitting of reality. There is no other. Mm-hmm. So there really is no subject in relationship to an object. Now, objectification can be used for a period of time yeah. as a learning curve, but in the ultimate reality of being. So there's nothing imposing from the outside. Either one is going to, we, one, yeah. the collective, individually, we're going to embody that power mm-hmm. of pure consciousness in its truth, mm-hmm. um, in its non-possessing nature, in its non-greed, or we're not. But the only, again, the only uh, person or collective we're playing it against yeah. is ourselves. Because, right? Because in the ultimate, uh, I want to say, state of being, yeah. There is no separation. Mm-hmm. So that defilement is not happening at the core. It's only mm-hmm. happening during the experience yeah. by uh, a conceptual error. Mm-hmm. Does that all make sense? Well, it sounds like what you're saying is, is that I need to understand if, if I steal something from you, I'm really hurting myself. That's right. That's right. Or if I lie to myself about, um, some level of like you're you're pointing to uh, you know the Tibetan master there. If I if if one is to lie to oneself about anything, mm-hmm. the only you're only hurting your own system, mm-hmm. and and the level of of um, clarity that one could walk through the mm-hmm. world with, as opposed to. So one, one might say then with regard to the yamas, the niyamas, that what it's all about is being good to yourself in the best of all possible ways. If we go back to Patanjali's term of kaivalya, that resting upon oneself, that, that gentle rest, um, is facilitated by that being kind to oneself in the best of all ways. And oneself, again, becomes the collective. Mm-hmm. We have a very individualistic way of viewing the world in Western society. Yeah. Um, and for sure, I think that evolution can be seen uh, as we com- go from the agrarian society into industrial society, the haven in the heartless world where people were really in this insular family environment mm-hmm. once we came into homes and, you know, off the fields. So there was less of a communal nature. And as we have evolved in Western society, we've become more and more isolated. And that idea of a separate self, um, grasping is its nature. That's what it knows to do. Oh, that's what it's trained to do because everything is objectified outside of it. It's- very strong in the United States. We have this pioneering spirit and this notion of rugged individualism. And, and you seem to be suggesting that the, the yoga philosophy emerged from a very different culture. Extraordinarily different culture. Because again, wholeness is its base. Pure consciousness is the ground. So it's, it's teaching in its own culture. It's teaching people, I, I want to say, who were at least exposed 
exposed to those teachings. And as we grow up, we're exposed mm -hmm. to consciousness is something that the, the human ego mm -hmm. You are reminding me of uh, something I read when I was an undergraduate and, and studied anthropology. One of the anthropology textbooks was a study of a little village in India near the Himalayan mountains where the people there believed that if they lived a very, very bad life, they would be reborn as an American. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of, I, I would say, native indigenous cultures who look at uh, what's happening in the United States and, and see the pain and suffering that mm -hmm. ensues from the cultural conceptions. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So yeah. let's move now to uh, some of the other limbs. Okay. So we, he's, again, he opens with the yamas, which mm -hmm. is basically the end and, and the, these, the qualities, if you will, of, of Brahman. And then he moves on into the niyamas, which are, are, those are more akin to sort of, uh, laws, if you will, or, um, Actually, if I could just say one more thing about, so in his sutras, as he lists, as he goes from the yamas to the niyamas, um, he speaks to the great vows. And again, because there is no other, in some sense we can say that's the vow consciousness makes throughout its energetic field. I'm not going to steal from you. If you understand that, you don't steal from me. And again, I'm speaking in a dualistic language there, but you see what I'm saying? As it en unfolds its enfolded nature, as it moves out into manifestation, that's the comfort of us doing the yoga practice and grounding back into that unity, that it's there, that there is, the, that it's, that there is no possession, no stealing, no, no Yahweh like God. You see what I mean? <laughs> no vengeance. Right, exactly. Exactly. Nonviolence, yeah. truthfulness. None of that to me is in that term. So I just wanted to mention that. Mm -hmm. So he moves on. He calls it the great vow. And then he goes into, and, and by the way, that's across all populations. It has, it has nothing to do with about being wealthy. He says, he talks about, um, that great vow is for all classes of people. It's anybody. But, so it, it's to me, it sounds like what you're saying is is that the practice of yoga involves a a vow or a commitment that one makes to oneself. To oneself, sure. To the depths of oneself, yes. I think we could say, and that's why in those yamas, the fourth yama is that brahmacharya, which. Uh, translates basically to walking in the awareness of the highest reality that's a vow that i'm that, that that's what i'm going to turn towards mm -hmm. walking towards that mm -hmm. and finding all the areas in my life that are blocking the level of that reality and so when he moves into the niyamas now he talks about uh purity contentment he uses the term tapas uh which is often translated as austerity um but it's, it's basically accepting pain as a path for purification, that sometimes we're going to have to sit through some painful uh, knots that are in the psyche in order to let them go to, to release. Um, tapas, then self-study, which t to me is it's study of, of the small self, but also study of these the scriptures that come from uh, the rishis, because again, the self, capital S, self, 
uh, which is another translation of Brahman, that's the, the totality, the reality mm -hmm. of being. So studying um, the small self and the capital S self, or the, the, the relative and the absolute, so to speak. Um, and you mentioned the term the rishis. Yes. That, so that's a term for, um, it means seers. And those were the um, original scribes of the Upanishads, the Vedas, uh, and that's the, the term used because basically they were basically seeing from the inside of reality, if you will. Again, it's not this um, taking an object from the outside and speculating about its basis. It was a total involution of, of thought form and the ability to see uh, from the inside. I believe there's a term anubhava, which is this idea of, of seeing from the inside, yes. And again, there's so much logical consistency throughout the whole body of work. That's why Patanjali also, I believe, uh, uses uh, perception and seeing interchangeably with consciousness. So, it's leading everyone to their Rishi nature, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the last uh, Niyama is uh, Ishvara Pradidhana, which basically means dedication to God, um, surrendering to God, or, or surrendering to the highest self, if you will. Okay. Uh, and if, I just want to circle back, if you don't mind, because mm. when you asked about that, the celibacy, um, it is often uh, thought of that way, um, and from one perspective, of course, we don't want to be expending our energy in a yoga in a committed yoga practice. One doesn't want to expend their energy in ways that aren't aiming one towards that yoking. So if excessive sexual energy is something that somebody would be engaging with, certainly that would be um, up for consideration. Well, you've just brought up an important notion, which is that the very word yoga, uh, Sanskrit uh, word, comes has the same meaning or, or this it has the same origin as our word yoke. Right, that's right. So, huge. Um, that is the etymology of that term, uh, to yoke, to harness. Mm -hmm. And again, now uh, throughout many of the texts, you can see it. Once again, in the Katha Upanishad, you can see it in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna and Arjuna are on a chariot with horses. And it's this idea of harnessing the, the, the horses. It's a, a metaphorical, you know, gimmick that's used, so to speak. Um, because what we want to do, so all these mental modifications that are running away, running, uh, through five sensory perception to, uh, uh, the appearance of an external world or a separate, a separate world. You, we want to harness all those thoughts that are just running uh, in multiple directions towards multiple things, and they want to be harnessed and yoked back so one actually um, can still the mind at will and then use thought uh, at will as well. So, so the energy isn't just going all over the place. Okay. So that harnessing, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a really... Uh, so, so those are the yamas and the niyamas. Yes. And then the third limb is the asana, mm -hmm. which is the hatha yoga practice. 
Um, With many people think that's what yoga is. Sure. A lot of people think that's what yoga is, especially, again, in Euro, in any sort of uh, Euro-American kind of culture, probably Australia mm-hmm. as well, because it's very, very big. It's People talk about yoga studio culture. That's that's what people do in the studio. Yes, they do. They also do bhakti, though. Mm-hmm. Well, at least in Los Angeles, where I come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so bhakti yoga. Maybe we could take a minute to to explain some of the other mm-hmm. yogas. Um, uh, now, and bhakti is uh, the yoga of devotion, and and in fact. Now, I just mentioned it also in the Niyamas. Remember, the last Niyama was dedication to God. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's a couple sutras where you can really see that Patanjali infiltrates other kind of yoga practices. Now, uh, these are other schools. Yep. Bhakti yoga is a school unto itself. Now, and that, if I recall correctly, that Niyama of dedication to God was called Ishvara Pradihana, yeah. Ishvara Pradayama. Pradihana. Pradihana. Yeah. <laughs> but Ishvara is is the name of the supreme deity, is it not? Yes, it is. The, it's certainly the one that Patanjali invokes, yes, mm-hmm. as the supreme Purusha that has no defilements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So we have Bhakti Yoga. Um, trying to think what else is big in the West. Yana Yoga, which is yoga of knowledge. I definitely see that in Patanjali's text. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sense, I think that the New Thinking Aloud videos are uh, a, an example, it, more or less, of Yana Yoga. We're, we're dealing with knowledge here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, would to- I would absolutely agree with that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then Karma Yoga, which is... Uh, Following one's karmic path in, in order to, um, again, to, to head one towards embodiment. Uh, mm-hmm. And that would be performing service in the world. Um, Ram Das was a big teacher, certainly, of the karmic yoga path, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so Hatha Yoga also is its own school. Now, this is Patanjali's third limb. Um, so he brings it in, just like he folds in bhakti and karma mm-hmm. and jnana as well. And um, people also hear of kundalini yoga. Kundalini yoga, absolutely. Yep, that's its own separate set of schools. How would yeah. you define that? Kundalini yoga. Uh, it's not something I actually practice myself, but there is, I believe, a lot of breathing practices involved in that. And there's asana practice involved in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it uh, works with definitely the... Um, the energetic system. One, so one wants to open the kundalini in, in you know, the Sushumna Nadi. In, in other words, to awaken the subtle energies, uh, the chakras and the uh, other uh, organs of subtle energy in the body. Yes, absolutely. It, but I do want to say I do feel that that's implied in all yogas. Okay. Because that's mm-hmm. that that could be one blanket way of stating that's what yoga is doing mm-hmm. is opening these uh, just um different people have different draws to the mm-hmm. different paths. Mm-hmm. Some people like to sit there and chant and but that 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 chanting and that devotion to God mm-hmm. is also offering the mm-hmm. opening as well. So in a, in a sense the eight limbs of Patanjali's yoga apply to all these other types of or schools of yoga. I would say absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, it could because it's the underpinning psychology it's the, it's one of the six orthodox Hindu philosophies. Yep. So, um, I believe it, it, it's an orthodox philosophy for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we have the asana and then uh, pranayama, which mm. is the breathing techniques. Yes. And um, now the asana and the breathing techniques um, are fostering, again, it's all fostering the mind-body unity. Um, but those, I think we can point to those limbs uh, even more specifically, that the calming of the nervous system and the, the ability to take a comfortable seat in the body are crucial to uh, the whole idea behind this philosophical system. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after pranayama, he lists uh, pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal. And again, that's also a crucial component. So these first... Um, Five limbs are pretty much more external than the last three, and we'll get into those in a minute. Um, but really, when we are suffering, one of the crucial components, and, and we get this um, very clearly in Jungian psychology as well, is the, the, the idea of projection. That which I don't know about myself, I am projecting out into the world. Mm. Um, so this this sense withdrawal is, yes, absolutely, um, Withdrawing from the five physical senses, the five senses, touch, taste, sight, that are running out to grab objects. Um, but I, I want to just say even the deeper layer of that is all the projection that mm. goes with that mm. to run out to something that is appears or perceived as the other. It's very seductive, the uh, sensory organs. Yes, they are. And I mean... If one reads Patanjali as a non-dual text, because it can be read both ways, um, and we look at the end and how he ends in, with Shakti, and tant- you can see where the doorway just opens to Tantra from there, then, then eating that peach or making love to a lover or holding one's child, the beauty of having the five-century perceptual system in order to engage and be in this world in that way. He's not asking us to eradicate it forever. Well, actually, that would be a big scholarly argument around the text. Mm -hmm. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that you're out of the world completely? Mm -hmm. I believe when read through a non-dual lens, that's not what he's saying. He's saying temporarily, temporarily suspend these senses Mm -hmm. because what you need to do is get yourself out of the objectification, out of that idea that that uh, heavy materialism that I'm running, my senses are running out to grasp material reality. So you, uh, when you approach it uh, later in a more refined way, consciousness is now the basis mm. of the experience. So after Pratyahara, then we get into the uh, more... Uh, mental disciplines. Now, now we're more internal. Uh, this is concentr- concentration, meditation, and absorption, or dharana, dhyana, samadhi. Um, and uh, yeah, this is definitely more internal. And now we're we're uh, involuting the mind even even mm-hmm. further inward. Because again, some of the ultimate vision of this text is to remove all objects from the horizon. Of awareness, because pure consciousness will have no alternative but to reveal itself. Because Brahman is absolute. So when I take the energy that's running uncontrollably 
out to an external appearance, when I harness that energy and take it back, that's how the channels open, if you will, or how the power comes back into the system in a different way um, to allow uh, what we were talking about at the beginning, the yamas, this idea of, of a wholeness, of a universality that underpins it, the whole philosophy. To me, it sounds like what you're saying is that at this point, when we have withdrawn uh, the senses from external uh, whatever, uh, we begin the process of ending this game of hide-and-go-seek that we're playing with ourselves. We begin to confront ourselves, our deep self, directly, our source. I love that way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. It is a game of hide-and-seek <laughs> because... Um, uh, Potentially, again, he doesn't use the term unconscious like we do in Jungian psychology. The unconscious is, even though Jung didn't claim his metaphysics, uh, I believe it's uh, Collected Works 5, uh, you can get one paragraph where he really describes the unconscious as real. To him, it's it's real. Yeah. But, but potentially, he doesn't use that term. He uses avidya, which, uh, if I could break that term down, vidya is wisdom. And because perception and seeing uh, is so crucial to the system of thought, seeing and wisdom are, are interchangeable there. And when you put an A before a word, it negates it. So it, it really means non-wisdom or non-vision. So your hide-and-go-seek metaphor is perfect. Mm -hmm. it, it, that avidya is hiding the actual reality. And again, so it's not something that we gain. If anything, we're losing things. We're losing all the constructs that were created to hide or that are veiling the ultimate reality. Which is sometimes referred to as Maya. That's, yes, that's right. Patanjali doesn't use that term, but often, mm -hmm. often, uh, Maya is used as mm -hmm. that, that idea of the veil. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, many people think, well, meditation is meditation, but it's broken down into three different limbs. Right, because um, Patanjali's meditation isn't just about insight. One, for sure, is going to gain insight along the way, but his process of meditation is an invitation to still the fluctuations of the mind. Mm -hmm. Not all uh, meditations offer that invitation, but that's his. Mm -hmm. So there's the um, uh, what are they called in Sanskrit? The last three yes. limbs. Yes. Uh, dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Dharana, and le so let's talk about Dharana. What? Okay. So that's concentration. Mm -hmm. So the ability to fix the mind on one point. So I don't know if you ever heard the term dristi, focal point, like. Um, You've done asana. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So, uh, when you're doing the asana, and let's just say you, your, your focal point is, uh, you know, the, the tip of your, tip of your nose or the tip of your finger. Um, it's a similar idea, but when you're sitting in your meditation practice, you're going to choose one object to focus. You're going to concentrate on that object. Okay. And over time, um, as that object continues to uh, appear and there's less busyness, mm -hmm. then one is able to uh, meditate on that object in a in a uh, a more I want to just say a more viable way because of the stillness involved, and then that's leading towards the reabsorption or the samadhi. Mm -hmm. So it's a 
So let's just say this is the vritis. This is the moving mind. And you're, you're going to settle the mind on one point. That's the invitation. Choose mm -hmm. something that's going to hold your attention. Mm -hmm. Something that feels good to you, that you're going to want to use because this isn't a path. It's not mick yoga. It doesn't happen overnight. This is something that one commits to with, with vigor for a good period of time in order to actually feel the results, mm -hmm. the harnessing. Mm -hmm. So um, you're going to choose the focal point and you're going to be able to, you know, concentrate after a good period of time. Mm -hmm. That concentration is going to remain steady. And then one is going to mm -hmm. meditate into the, the gross and more subtle aspects of that object. And then as um, all those gross and subtle aspects Again, we gain insight into that, but you're able to stay non-attached all the time to the insights. This is all going to slow down and absorb itself back into the field out of which it arose. Mm -hmm. And and I gather the uh, preceding five limbs are all uh, helping you to achieve the ability to really concentrate. Absolutely. Again, they're limbs, so they all are working in tandem. Mm -hmm. That being the asana helps one to be able to take a comfortable seat. Um, but also, again, th those poses are all metaphorical. Yeah. So finding the balance, using the breath to, to calm the mind and again, to be able to sit. So some days, let's say, because, um, you know, it sounds easier than it is, right? Oh, mm -hmm. sit, concentrate, yeah. meditate. But that's why it's a long-term path yeah. because it really isn't easy. And if, if there are a lot of splits in the mind, which we have, Again, right? We talked about that science is split from religion. Mm -hmm. The subject is split from the object. Heaven is split from earth. Uh, you know, it's a me-you game. Like, we, right. ha we are sitting in a lot of splits. Now, all of those, we could say, let's use a Western lens for a minute, are sitting inside some kind of complex, some kind of activated um, habit pattern that's going to move on its own to still all of those uh, fragmented aspects of mind, so to speak, from the relative point of view, it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. going to take a minute. And it isn't mm -hmm. necessarily easy. That's, yeah. again, that's why um, Patanjali speaks to the tapas, that, that austerity, that, that ability to be able to sit through the pain in order to release everything that's been bound up in there. I mean, I have heard that most people can't really concentrate for 30 seconds. Right. I think that's very true. Mm -hmm. I have so many clients that come to me, I have ADHD. Mm. And I'm like, put your phone down. <laughs> like the, our whole culture actually yeah. is encouraging us to have a busier, uh, as fast as we're importing uh, yoga and Buddhism and the meditative practices, we're at the same time, we're also getting more red dots on our phone and more dopamine hits mm -hmm. from all the social media that a lot of us engage in. Mm -hmm. So, But then... Uh, I presume that the, the stage of uh, dharana, concentration, is really a prerequisite for entering into the next stage of dhyana. Yes, absolutely. That's why he has them. them. And he also speaks to it as a, so samyama, he uses this term, which is uh, as one progresses on the path, that concentration, meditation, and absorption, they're all enfolded t mm -hmm. together. And then one is able to really concentrate, meditate, and become absorbed in what one uh, wants to focus one oneself on, and um, you know, perhaps that's where we could it does dovetail dovetails into remote viewing. But mm -hmm. that must be what remote viewers have the capacity to do, 
in order to gain insight into whatever is at happening at the signal. Mm-hmm. To perform samyama. Yeah. With, now, how do you define samyama? Yeah, it's it's uh, basically the combination of concentration, meditation, and absorption. Ah, Just, I see. Yeah. So, in other words, even to begin to do samyama, you have to achieve samadhi. I would say you are absolutely right there. So a level of samadhi is already on, in, in play by the mm-hmm. time one is... Yeah. Because yeah. You, most of the remote viewers I know are not yogis. They don't go through all of this. Some of them, for the very first time, in fact, uh, many of them sit down, they close their eyes, they do remote viewing and do beautifully uh, right off the bat. Right, but in I think it's four point one. Patanjali does say you can come into this lifetime with some of these special powers, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. So it isn't necessarily that one has to go through a rigorous. Right. Uh, you know. We uh, haven't even begun to talk about past lives. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. But so some people can absolutely. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, it can come. Some some of these things can come easily to some people, yes, not so easily I, to others. In other words, many people are born with talent. And it might well be that they worked hard in a previous lifetime to cultivate those talents. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it will show back up. And mm-hmm. I mean, karma is a big part, for sure, of the whole vision yeah. uh, of this, this and philosophy. It, and yeah. it's certainly the case many people struggle and never really feel that they have a handle to do remote viewing. And for other people, it comes quite naturally. Right. Right, those psychic abilities, I mean, clairaudience, clairvoyance, potentially definitely speaks to those, mm-hmm. where I think, um, boy, I mean, this is your whole body of work, is, <laughs> is in that field of, of parapsychology. Yes. Um, and right, it's parapsychology, it's outside of the field of Western psychology. See how potentially enfolds it. Mm-hmm. He enfolds astrology, he enfolds parapsychology mm-hmm. into his psychology. It's, yeah. it's a much more emboldened from our perspective, uh, but again, holistic. Which is why I feel that uh, if anyone is serious about studying parapsychology as a modern scientific discipline, they should pay attention to these ancient traditions. Yeah, I bet you they can gain gain a lot from doing that, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. And also, um, again, Patanjali teaches to the fact that these powers are not the end of the game, so to speak. This is what you aren't. You aren't doing the yoga path to gain the powers. The powers will come. And I, I feel like, uh, again, he does his students justice by explaining that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also very clear. This is not what you want to hold on to. This isn't the big gain here. Um, if, because at any time, any of those samskaras or the vasanas can activate. And if, if one wants to get, again, this non-grasping, yeah. we're going to go back to the, the non-possessive, non-grasping. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be, um, you know, taken a hold of by a so, so-called ego. So, in other words, if a samskara gets activated, it's some sort of an unconscious tendency that you haven't dealt with that might rise up to the surface. And just when you think you're uh, close to enlightenment and you're using your uh, cities or, let's say, remote viewing abilities for, for the good of the world, some sort of selfish instinct might come up and uh, pull you back. 
well, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, again, from this system of thought, this is what we always were to begin with. This is the, the wholeness is the given. Yeah. It's the fragmentary thought and illusory perception mm-hmm. that we're looking to eradicate. So you can't, why would you take ownership of it again from that grounded perspective? It, it, it makes no sense from mm-hmm. that point of view. Yep. Now you're just going to cause more pain again. Well, I gather that within various schools of yoga, there there are different approaches here. Some schools, uh, like the tantric tradition, seem to place more emphasis on the cultivation and application of the cities, and other schools uh, feel that they're an obstruction, an obstacle to achieving enlightenment. Right. And again, even the, the term achieving enlightenment, I, I have a lot of yeah. I, I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ramdas has often said there's nothing to achieve. Right, right, exactly. It's a letting go of. Mm-hmm. Um, y- yeah, so I, I would, I mean, I'm in Patanjali's camp, uh, probably, <laughs> maybe obviously, uh, which is why I so love the text, that they, that yes, they, they, they will come. Actually, there's no alternative in one sense mm-hmm. for them not to come. Mm-hmm. Because as one, settles all this one one is resting upon oneself which is pure consciousness where the knowledge is structured in it mm-hmm. so things w- will come up again uh he speaks to prajna and uh this idea of non-dual wisdom non-dual insight that one gets that's now we're back to the rishis mm-hmm. that one is actually seeing from the inside you're not going around objects of knowledge you're seeing from the inside and to begin to hang on to that is just to to cut yourself off at the knee mm-hmm. again <laughs> well i have heard the term from buddhism it seems related prajna paramita uh-huh. Which I understand, uh, I like the term because it has the same word para, paramita, as in parapsychology. I think it means the wisdom of going beyond. And it, it sort of seems to imply that wherever you are, go beyond, go another step. Right, right, right. Going beyond anything that's constructed. And again, even in, in Western neuroscience, right? Uh, this, the tertiary processes that, that, that lights up on these fMRIs. Like, mm-hmm. the, we can really test very well these correlations, uh, uh, the, the neuronal correlations of when the mind is firing. Mm-hmm. But this idea of going beyond isn't anything to do with building knowledge. It's about letting go of any constructs. So one is relaxing back into the field where knowledge is actually structured. And in my opinion, if we have any hope in hell of reversing any of the problems environmentally, we're going to have no alternative but to to keep going further down the the invitation that yoga offers. The invitation to reunite with our source. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Leanne Whitney, once again, a very profound and beautiful discussion about uh, one of the richest and, and most important, and I have to say most influential traditions in human history. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, Jeff, always to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.